So it's good. It's good to be here this morning. I want to go ahead and, and not only are we grateful for the partnership we have here at CFA and Pastor Tom and being able to come share with you. And I wanted to introduce you to my family. This picture was taken about a year and a half ago. So my son Jude there in the middle is 13. He, uh, he's grown a lot since this picture. He is uh, 13, but he looks like he's about 37 years old. He's born with a big head. Uh, my daughter, or my son Cruz, is now 10 years old. He was born with a big head. And my daughter Indy is four. She was born with a perfectly sized head. We're very grateful for that, especially if you suffer from big head problems. You know who you are. You walk into a room's head first. You're off balance a lot. My mom says that my head is the same size today as it was the day that I was born. So we've learned to deal with big-headed problems in our family. Uh, we'd love for you to be on the journey with us of life and missions. And So there's a couple ways to do that. Uh, there's our social media hashtags here. There's our Facebook profile and, and our Instagram. You can find us on both of those places. And then africacause.org. You can go there and continue to follow along with the journey of missions and what God has called us to. We'd love to have you on that road with us. If you have your Bible, would you turn with me to the book of Matthew chapter number 9? The book of Matthew, chapter number 9, verse number 35, it'll be on the screen as well, but the book of Matthew, chapter number 9, verse number 35, it says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. I call this message, the sheep need a shepherd. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for the opportunity to be in church. Lord, I pray that you would speak life, that you would speak encouragement into us this morning. Father, for every person in the building and every person who's a part of the online family watching right now, Lord, I pray that you would bless, that you would encourage, that you would strengthen. Lord, and I pray that we would leave this moment knowing that we have been in the presence of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. In your name we pray, and everybody said, Amen. I've always been uh, in touch, I suppose, with the story of Moses from the Bible. I love the story of Moses from the Bible because I believe along with the story of David and the story of Moses that they are very intricate stories that somehow draw us back to our understanding of the goodness of God. I love the story of Moses because when Moses was born, the Bible tells us Moses was born into a chaotic time, a time of heartbreak and a time of bloodshed. When Moses was born, every born child was to be killed immediately at the time that they were born. See, Moses' people had been raised for 400 years as slaves in the land of Egypt. And when Moses was born, it was the edict, it was the dictate by the Pharaoh, the most powerful man in all of the land, that every boy born immediately was to be slain. Every girl could live, but every boy could die. He was trying to eradicate their bloodline. He was trying to eradicate the Hebrew people that had grown exponentially over the last 400 years, and he was concerned about their life, about their existence. And when Moses was born, the Bible tells us in one version that Moses' mom and dad saw that he was beautiful. One version says that he was special. Another version says that he was unique. And so when Moses was born, his mother and father did not allow him to be killed. They refused to allow their baby boy to die. So for the next three months, they hid him and they protected him, hoping to somehow avoid his death. See, I'm the, I'm the father of three beautiful children. Two of them are big-headed and one is perfectly normal. I'm the father of three amazing children that I love with all of my heart. 
Uh, one of them is my favorite. The other two I deal with, but I love my kids. I love that God has given me three kids, but the truth is, there's not a mother and a father. I'm joking. I hope some of you know this. Some of y'all are you're like, he doesn't like two of his. No, I'm joking. I have three kids, but I know that every mother and father, at the moment that your child was born, you were in awe of that moment. There's not a single mom and dad in the room that looked at that child, went in for the first time to be able to hold it, to be able to see it, looked down into the eyes of that child and said, really, this is what you've given us. Nine months and this thing. Every mom and dad was in awe of the beauty of that child, that boy, that girl. And so when Moses' mom and dad protected them for three months, it probably wasn't a unique for them, but they, they knew that God had something extraordinary in store for their child. In fact, I'm the type of person that believes that from the moment they saw this boy, they knew that there was a, a destiny and a legacy for him to be able to walk out and to live his life through. And three months later, after they could no longer protect him, he was too loud, there was too much for them to do, they put him inside of a reed basket, They put the reed basket on the Nile River and they prayed that God would provide for their child. But it it, it is like the providence of God and not to do anything by mistake that when they put him in the reed basket, it happened to be at the place where the daughter of the Pharaoh, the daughter of the man that wanted him dead, happened to be coming to bathe in the water. She took him into her home. She raised him as her own. She protected him. She watched over him. He, he should have been raised as a pauper, but Moses became raised as a prince. He should have been raised in a place of poverty, but he was raised in the lap of luxury. Moses, his life immediately changed. But it's also just like the providence of God that the very woman who had given birth to him became the caretaker that was brought into the home to begin to watch over the boy that she had to give away. It's just like God to begin to provide a way when there seems to be no way. See, there's some of you in the room this morning that you're looking at life and you're looking at circumstance and you're trying to determine how God is going to make a way in the middle of the season that you find yourself in. I want to encourage somebody. When God shows you that there's an opportunity, He'll make a way for the opportunity. When God shows you that there's a way, He will provide the way in the midst of the season when we don't seem to understand why it is the way that it is. There's something called faith. It means when God shows you something, He provides the way and my responsibility is to walk by faith in seasons like this it's one of the hardest things that you will ever do but probably one of the most growing things that you can accomplish to walk by faith and not by sight i'm seriously going to get off my message time if i go down this trail i want to see i think oftentimes in our church in the american church we we are the type of people that want to know what the ending looks like. We want to know what the ending looks like now because we want to wonder if the journey's for us. The scripture says that he's given me, he's been a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. It doesn't say that he will be a lamp unto my journey. It says that he will be a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path, which to me means he will give me direction for the next step. It doesn't always mean he will show me the ending. It means he will show me the next step. My responsibility as a follower of Jesus is to continue to take the very next step. Keep going the way that he's shown me and he will provide for me on the journey because I have enough faith to take the very next step. That's one of the hardest things you can do, but once again, a growing opportunity for you and me. 
And so Moses, Moses began to hear from his mother, I believe. Moses, you're not like everybody else. You're not the way that everybody else says that you are. There's something special about you, Moses. You weren't an Egyptian. You're not an Egyptian. In fact, you're one of the slave people. And I believe that Moses, along the journey, began to instill in his own heart, through the words of his mother, who he really, really was. And Moses was now grown. Around the age of 40, the Bible tells us that Moses walked out into a field one day. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew slave, and Moses, in a fit of anger, snapped killed the Egyptian, thinking that his people would stand with him, but instead they shunned him. And for the next 40 years, Moses, in the middle of the desert, wandered in exile as a shepherd, as a sheep herder, until one day he saw a bush that was on fire, but the bush wasn't being consumed. Certainly, in a moment of curiosity, he goes and he stands in front of the burning bush. Standing there in front of the burning bush, he heard the word of the Lord say, Go back to Egypt and say to Pharaoh, Let my people go. Go back to the land that you've abandoned. Go back to the land that you've been in exile from. Go back to the land that you've escaped from. And I want to draw your attention to the words that Moses said to God. He said, Lord, find someone else. In other words, he said, Lord... No. Do you know what the definition for the word Lord is? It's master, chief, chieftain. He said to, he said to the Lord, master, no. As I get into this message over the next few moments, I want to submit to you something. I want to submit to you that if God ever calls you out of something of comfort for you to begin to do something you recognize now you cannot do on your own and your answer to him is no, he's not actually your master at all. He's not truly Lord at all. About a year and a half ago, the Lord began to draw my wife and I from everything that we knew to embrace something that we did not fully understand or comprehend or weren't even sure that we really wanted to do or to go forward in. And we had to make a move because of that. She said, Jacob, she said, I want us to buy a, a house. I want us to buy a house with character. Y'all know what that means? It means let's buy an old house with old house problems. See, I need you to understand something. I am not a handyman. I've got one three-inch screwdriver that came with the TV we bought 10 years ago. Fortunately, the TV came with the screwdriver because I have taken care of many projects over the last 10 years with a three-inch screwdriver. If it can be done with a three-inch screwdriver, I can do it. Otherwise, it sits in the box. I am not the guy. Maybe you've got a guy in your life like this. I am not the guy that goes to his floorboard of his car, rustles through McDonald's wrappers, and comes back with enough tools to take on the project. That's not me. I don't know what I'm doing. And so I've become frustrated. I'm not going to lie. I've become frustrated over the last few months. A few weeks ago, I walked into my kitchen. I'm, I'm, I'm totally serious. I walked into my kitchen at, late at night. I was hungry and I was angry. I became hangry. And I walked into the kitchen with a little bit too much vibration. One of my cabinet doors fell to the ground. We found a metallic tube coming up through the floorboard of our kitchen. We don't know where it comes from. I've investigated. I don't know where it goes. I'm starting to become frustrated with things in my house. I went into my garage a few weeks ago and found a crack in the length of the ceiling of my garage. And I went to my wife and I said, you've asked me to take on the projects of a home and I'm not a handyman. I don't know what I'm doing. And to be honest with you, I've become frustrated. And, and this is what she said to me. She said, Jacob, I think you need to find someone who understands the problems and the pain of an old house so that you can partner together and begin to get through the pain of your current situation. 
So I felt like I needed to spiritualize that a little bit. So I feel like somebody in the room needs to be reminded of this. The current pain that you're in right now is only a temporary problem as long as you have the right partner fighting with you. See, we go through too much pain in life because we don't have the right partner fighting with us. We need a human touch, and so we settle for a one-night stand. We need love, and yet we give in to lust. We need Jesus, but we settle for any person that tells us that we're the right thing right now. But the answer to your problem is found in who you partner with. So I want to put this thought in somebody's head. Some of you have not come to the realization yet, but you are the answer to the problem that you have not even yet begun to ponder. You are the brick in the hands of the builder. You're the answer to somebody's prayer. You're the message that has not even yet met the breath of God. See, the way maker is always making a way, but the way maker wants to use people on the journey, on the path that we're walking on right now. In other words, it means it's not just my responsibility or your responsibility. What God wants to do becomes our responsibility. It becomes what we do together. And when we partner together, we can do far greater things than if it's just my job or your job. When it's our job, we exponentially increase the opportunity that God is taking us through. We become more together than we'll ever be alone. That's why isolation, when you're struggling, will be the death of your dream. Don't allow isolation when you're struggling. For those of you watching online, for the online family, some of you have been in the midst of isolation for the last few weeks and months, and there's struggling taking place. I encourage you, don't allow your isolation to become the reason why you let go of what you know God has promised you. Remember who God is. Remember what God has said. Remember what God has done. And everything that God has promised, you can take it to an understanding of His character. His character is a yes and a man in Christ Jesus our Lord. What God says is what God does. And when you follow that out to the ending, you find that His grace is still enough. See, we're called to be more than spectators. We're called to be participators. Look with me at what the Bible says in Luke chapter 3. It says, And he, talking about John the Baptist, went into all the regions around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it's written in the book of Isaiah, the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. Notice with me, John the Baptist had two responsibilities. His first responsibility was to go, and so he went. His second responsibility was to preach, and so he did. He went and he preached. John the Baptist preached the forgiveness of sins and of baptism. See, some of us are sent, and so we must go. I believe it's our responsibility as sons and daughters of God to preach the forgiveness that Jesus brings to our life. To preach that Jesus is a healer. To preach that Jesus can restore your marriage. To preach that Jesus can give you wisdom for your business even when it seems like it's all getting ready to fall apart. I believe that there's wisdom in understanding the calling of God. And some of you will find at the end of the message today that you have been called by God to do extraordinary things. And for some of you, that means to go overseas. But all of us are sent next door. 
See, I need you to help me go to Africa, but don't miss out on your next door neighbor focusing on me. Because if we focus only on the person overseas, but forget about the person next door, then we've missed out on what a great part of what the Great Commission is all about. From Jerusalem into Judea and to the uttermost parts of the earth. In other words, the Great Commission starts with what's closest to me. It starts with who is around me. And the struggle for many of us is that we want to do the easy thing. Unfortunately, sometimes the easiest thing is to focus on the distance. Oftentimes, the hardest thing is to continue to believe with God about the people who are nearest to you. For your sons and your daughters and your neighbors, they're the ones who know you the most. And they're the ones whose testimony you have means the most. Oh. I'll clap that. Pastor, I told Pastor, I said, I got the same message two, two, two times in a row, two services. He said, what do you do when you don't? You'll, they'll have other things. And I feel like I'm on another path this, this morning. See, some of you have been, been just watching. And if you just watch what God does, then you'll miss out on a part of his will. Some of you have just been standing. I pray that God begin to stir your heart. Some of you know what the path is because you've been on the path and you're on the journey of discovery and watching as God does extraordinary things in your life. So part of your job is to help make the path straight for someone else. So the application becomes to you and to me. I'm going to go. I pray that God sends some of you. I'm going to preach and we're all going to preach. But the story's been a little bit different for me than going since I was born. When I was born, my mom and dad pastored a small church in Mount Ida, Arkansas. You have no idea where it is. And when I was two, my dad had a dream. In his dream, he got out of an airplane and he set his feet down on the peninsula. He saw that it was a peninsula because he looked around and it was surrounded on all three sides by water. He looked out over the bay and he saw that there was a city on the other side that rose on the mountains where the mountains met the beach, where they met the water. The next morning he went to my mom and he said, I feel like we're called into missions and I I think I know where we're supposed to go. And she laughed. She said, you go. I'm going to stay. So for seven years my dad processed and pondered that dream until the Lord began to speak to my mom. And together they went and they sat in front of a group of men and women to talk about the possibilities. They mentioned several countries in Africa that needed a missionary and and one of them said, we need someone to go to Sierra Leone. My dad said, tell me about that place. And the missionary said, well, when you land, you're going to land on a peninsula. And when you get out, you put your feet down and you look out over the bay of water and on the other side you'll see that there's a city on the other side that rises up over the mountains where the mountains meet the beach, where they meet the water. And in 1992, we became missionaries to Sierra Leone, West Africa. My mom and dad left everything that they knew and every friend and family member that they had to embrace the uncomfortable call of God. I remember when God told me to go for the very first time. When I was 14 years old, I was sitting in a large youth convention in Irving, Texas, when the back doors of the building flew open. And teenagers my age came marching into the building carrying the flags of the world. And I remember I looked over to my right and, and I saw instantly the, the flag of the country of Liberia, which was next door to where we lived. And when I saw that flag, I knew in my heart, I said, God's calling me into missions one day. I became a student in Central Bible College in Springfield, Missouri. And 
1999. I felt like the Lord wanted me to be an evangelist at that time. So I didn't know what to do. I sat on the floor of my dorm room and I called pastors who didn't know me, had no relationship with me. I prayed that God would create an opportunity. I found out that I was timid. See, but I've learned something over the years about the character of God. He will take your timidity and he will turn it into a tenacity. God will take the thing that gives you concern and it will become the thing that your cause is all about. He will cause you to fall in love with his business. And in case you and I need a reminder, the business of God has always been about the rescue of lost sons and daughters. At the end of the day, there is a business that God has called us to. And at the core of the message of Jesus is the cross of Christ that we are pointing people to every day. And the cross of Christ is the business of God for your son, for your daughter, for your best friend. It's his business and his business is a rescue mission it's to bring people into relationship with him and if we will be used by God he will take the thing that gives us fear and he will cause it to be the thing that we are all for as long as we pursue that dream and then again in 2013 God said to my family go again see for the love of a city we moved here We actually moved to the West Valley, to the city of Glendale, and we began the process of planting a church called Compel. And over the course of the next five and a half years, we saw a thriving church. Hundreds of people came to know Jesus, and marriages restored, and sons and daughters who were rescued. And we felt like we'd become the parents of of a church that we believed God had called to become a movement. And then I felt like I looked into the face of God standing in a burning bush. And he began to speak to me. In all honesty, I found myself walking away from the voice of God. I thought that if I could just stay on the move, continue to do good things, then maybe God would have to catch up with me. Don't allow the good things that you do to become the enemy of the great things God has called you to. If you focus only on the good things, thinking that somehow that God can't catch you where you are, you'll end up living your life doing some very good things, but never fulfill the great things that God has destined you from the foundation of the world to actually become a part of. The good things in your life will be things that people applaud and they laud. But if you're not careful, those good things will take away from the great things you were meant to accomplish with God's purpose in you. I found out I was saying no to God. I felt like I was saying no to God and sometimes the way my kids say no to me. Come here and get a drink. No. Come eat the sandwich. No. You really have to have ranch on your chicken? Yes. I wanted to say no, but it's just not true. I feel like the Lord began to speak to us. I've learned in my life that I don't like being unsettled. In fact, I've decided that it has all to do with my comfort. It has to do with my comfort, and so in my discomfort, I would rather say no to God. And see, when we tell God no, we tell God that my fear is greater than his ability. When we tell God no, we say that his strength cannot help my weakness. When we tell God no, it becomes a rejection of his plan for me. And when I say no to God more than I tell him yes, it's more than my preference. It's truly all about my pride. In my pride, I want to tell God no, because in my preference, I want to stay rooted in where I am. 
you will find in this life that your comfort will always be the enemy of your progress. If you allow yourself to remain rooted in comfort, then in your discomfort will be the thing that you run from. And you'll find oftentimes that when you are pursuing God in the dream that He's laid out for you, it will rarely lead you to seasons and times of comfort. It will regularly lead you to seasons and times of discomfort. So, Brandon, I want you to understand that when I pulled my children together, and we sat on the steps in our home, we told them what God had called us to. We asked them to leave every friend that they had. And the only church that they'd ever known to pursue God for the sake of the continent of Africa. My eight-year-old son at the time, Cruz, put his head on my chest and he wept. And then I did too. Because I knew the cost of what we were giving up. See, we've said yes to the 48 countries in Africa that these somebody's of God does ministry in. We're saying yes to 252 million people who've never heard the name Jesus. We're saying yes to 867 unreached people groups. On the continent of Africa today, we have the same number of Assemblies of God missionaries that we did in 1964. In Africa today, even though we've been sending missionaries to Africa since 1919, we still have those 252 million people who've never heard the name Jesus. And so somebody somewhere has to be willing to say yes. Somebody somewhere must be willing to say, God, yes. I'll never tell you that if you say yes to God, it will lead you to valleys filled with flowers where you can lay down and play. Scripture says that even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. It means that even though God asks you and I to do things that from time to time are uncomfortable and we walk through the valley that rests in the shadow of death, I don't have to fear evil because I know that He is with me. I know that He comforts me. I know that He leads me. And I know that His character means He will never forsake me. He will never turn His back on me. So what's the problem with giving God the best thing that we can give him the greatest thing that you can give God it's not your money though we'll take it it's not your finances it's not your time or your talent the greatest thing that you can give to God is your yes because everything follows your yes your finances submit to your yes your talent submits to your yes your time submits to the yes that you give God and if you give God yes, everything that you think you give God follows the yes. I felt like Moses. Standing in front of a burning bush. But God, I, I don't talk right, I stutter. I don't, I don't have ability to speak in front of people. God, look at everything I've left. I, I, I murdered a man and I had to walk away from everything. God, you don't understand what I've walked away from. You don't understand everything that I've, that I've had to run from for 40 years. And so here I am, God. 
every single obstacle that Moses could consider, he laid in front of God. Then notice what God did. He said, you won't have to go alone. I'll send your brother. See, it's a lesson. God will never ask you to do something that you will have to go on or toward by yourself. From the moment that you say yes to God, the power and the presence of the person of the Holy Spirit has been going to that place long before you have been willing to actually step out in faith and trust God. He will go there, He will lead you there, and His power will stay with you there. Regardless of what it looks like, His presence is already there. Finally, Moses said yes. Finally, Moses said yes. And you know what happened on the other side of his yes? As Moses stood in front of the Pharaoh of Egypt and ten plagues later, after Moses finally said yes, the Bible says that two million people who'd been slaves for 400 years walked out in freedom after because Moses was willing to give God the best thing that he had, his best yes. What would happen if you gave God your best yes? What would happen if you gave God yes? Freedom, a move of God and Chandler, salvation for your son and your daughter, the dream, the finances that you've asked God for, the business that you prayed about, all happens on the other side of yes. I I first met KK when she was 18 years old. We became friends. And I learned that when she was when she was 10, her mom and her dad gave birth to her only sibling, a baby boy. So her mom and her dad didn't have a relationship with Jesus. And so most weekends and, and often weeknights, they would go partying. And KK would left, was left to be the caretaker for her brother. She lived in the Midwest and tornadoes would come through. The sirens would go off. And she would hold her brother close and she would whisper into his ear, it's going to be okay. But she didn't know for sure if it would. See, her dad had become addicted to gambling. He'd lost everything more than once, trying to win back what he'd lost. Time and time again, he would try. And because he never could win, he became angry. Verbally abusive, he would, he would abuse his kids and his wife verbally until they never wanted to be around him. His frustrations became so much that he eventually started to lose his fist. KK was invited to church when she was 12. Her life was radically changed by Jesus. Day one, day one, she was changed by Jesus. It was when she was 12 that she started asking her mom and her dad to come to church with her. And at the age of 12, they repeatedly told her no. They would always say that they were busy. So for years, she was picked up by the church van. When she was 16 years old, she'd gathered enough money to buy a car. It was also that summer that she felt like God had called her into missions. She didn't know what to do about it. So she went to her youth pastor and she said, what can I do to give to missions? He told her about a ministry within our movement called Speed the Light. Speed the Light is the youth ministry missions initiative that buys essential communication and transportation tools for missionaries all over the world. 
Twice I remember sitting with my dad as we purchased Speed the Light vehicles with money given by teenagers around the world. So she went to her church and she started to mow the lawn. It was huge. Mowed it by hand. I used to love raking my rocks here. Didn't own a lawnmower for seven years. It was glorious. And she was 16 years old mowing the lawn by hand. She got involved in other projects and at the end of her 16th year, when she was 16 years old, she gave $10,000 to Speed the Light all by herself. She wanted to invest in missions long before she ever put her hand on it. I said this in the first service and I believe that it's applicable now. There's some of you in the room that you know God has called you to something but you're not sure what to do. I believe that God would provide a way for you to begin to invest in it long before you ever touch it. God will allow you to invest in the thing that you're called to whether it's missions or an opportunity. He will give you the opportunity if you will say yes. He will show you the way. When she was 17, she went on her very first missions trip to Guatemala. It was an amazing week. All week long, God was moving. On the very last night, a young lady came down to the altar and, and Keke went to put her hand on her to pray. And when she did, the Lord spoke to her immediately and said, when you go home, your mom and your dad are going to serve me. Come on, it had been years. Six years, every Sunday she would said, come with me to church. And six years, every Sunday they said that they were busy. And you can imagine how excited she was. So she got home the next day. She ran home, grabbed the gigantic family Bible that we had in the 80s and 90s. Come on, y'all remember. And she went in, she put it down in front of her dad and said, the Lord told me that you were going to serve him. He picked up the Bible. He said, every word in this book is a lie. He threw it across the room. She cried herself to sleep that night. Six months passed. And then Christmas Eve rolled around. The Christmas Eve service was there. She went to her mom and her dad and she said, it's Christmas Eve, could you come with me? But they were busy. So KK went by herself. And she sat on the front row. Pastor preached an amazing message and at the end he said, I feel like there's somebody in this room that wants to give their life to Jesus. Everybody in the building, he said, close your eyes, bow your head. And, and then KK did what everybody in this room has done before. You're a liar if you say you haven't. She bowed her head, but she opened one eye. She kind of looked around the room. And when she did, some movement caught her attention. <laughs> her mom and her dad were walking down the aisle. She'd never seen him in church before. Her dad had a suit and a tie on. She'd never seen that before. On that Christmas Eve night, her mom and her dad were the only two people who gave their lives to Jesus at First Assembly of God in Independence, Missouri. All because of the determination of a 14, a 16, a 17 year old girl that was not going to let obstacles stand in her way. Imagine if she would have said, God, there's no way I can do this. Look, my mom and dad don't serve you. How am I going to go into missions with everything in front of me, God? It's a reminder that there's no mountain in your life that God cannot move. There is no water that sits in front of you that God, who's parted them before, won't part them again. There is no obstacle that God cannot move because He is a miracle-working way-maker of a God who will make a way when there seems to be no way.
And I can tell you that after knowing her now for 19 years, having been married to her for 17, I've never seen her dad angry. I've never seen him lift his voice. See, today, we are almost there. We're almost done with this season of raising our funds to go to Africa. Simply because I believe my wife, when she was 17, said, I'm not going to let obstacles remain in my path. If God has called me, he'll show me how to get there. When you give God the best yes that you have, he will take care of the rest. The only thing that he's looking for is the yes. Don't overcomplicate the plan, the will, your future by trying to figure out everything on your own. That's not your job. Your job is to give God the yes and he'll bring freedom on the other side of your yes. Your job is to look at the burning bush and say yes and then let God take care of everything on the other side. So how about that? How about you? Is there a yes in is there okay in you? If there is, then maybe you can give that to God today. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Please don't look around for just a moment. Maybe you're in this room and you would be honest with me and say, Jacob, the Lord called me to something. The Lord put something in me. I just want to say yes. Did you know that most missionaries are called between the ages of 13 and 19? And the statistics tell us that one, only one out of every 100 people that God calls ever actually goes. That means there's somebody in this room that you heard God. When you were younger, or last week, or last year, when I ask you to raise your hand for the yes, you're raising your hand for a very specific yes. God, I just want to say yes to what you put in my heart all those years ago. Or maybe, maybe you're going to be proactive. I have no idea what you're asking, God. And you don't need to. You don't have to know what it looks like. But if you'll give God yes right now, he'll put a neighbor in your path. He'll give the opportunity for the business. He'll send somebody to stand with you. So I'm going to count to the number three and then I'm going to briefly pray. If you're in the room and you honestly say, God, I give you the yes. It's the most important thing I have and I want it to be yours. I give you, give you my yes on the count of three. I just want you to put one of your hands in the air. One, two, three. Let me see it right where you are. Thank you. Thank you. You're willing that you can stand if you'd like. Now let me pray. Father, I pray for every person in the room who said yes, Jesus. Every hand that's been raised for those standing to their feet, God, I pray that you would begin to bless, anoint, and prepare them right now. Yes, hallelujah to the Lord Jesus. Hallelujah to the Lord Jesus. I praise you. Holy is the Lord. Holy is the Lord. Come on, the Lord's going to give somebody some specific things right now. Thank you, Jesus. God, I pray that you will begin to anoint and bless them right now for the yes that they give to you because we recognize it is in your will that we say yes. And when we do, you show great and mighty things that some people cannot explain. So anoint and bless. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.